Are you looking for accounting software that's easy to use and affordable? Are you looking for accounting, payroll, HR management, and time and attendance apps that work together seamlessly? Do you want service and support that's based in the USA? Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, Patriot, later in the episode. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. Hello and welcome to Oh My Fraud, a true crime podcast where our criminals cut checks instead of necks. I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. Uh, Greg, I am excited for this episode today. You know why? Why is that, Caleb Newquist? Well, for starters, we are doing a follow-up episode from an earlier episode, episode four, uh, uh, which is entitled With Great Check Writing Power, comes great responsibility. Yep. And it is worth the, our our episode is an interview of the perpetrator of that fraud. That's why I'm excited. Are you excited? Yes. We interviewed Nathan Muller. The dude stole over $8 million from insurance giant ING in the early 2000s, which is one of my favorite fraud cases ever. And uh, I've done tons of webinars and live CPE events where I've referenced this fraud. Uh, so I kept thinking that I was like, like, am I Nathan Muller's biggest fan? But it's weird <laughs> to be a fan of a guy who committed a crime. But I yeah. know, but listen, I know a hell of a lot of a lot more about Nathan Muller than I do about like Adele or Tom Segura. And I am fans of them. So it's yeah. a weird, weird place to be. So let me ask you, what is it about this fraud that makes it one of your favorites? Honestly, I think one of the big things that that makes it one of my favorites is that the first account that I ever read of this fraud was Nathan Muller's own account of it. So the fact that we got some inside baseball on it, but then it's also just fun as we'll see with the interview, we we get into it. There's some, there's some weird turns and twists that happen uh, it, as this uh, fraud continues, some close calls that he had uh, yeah. that were just de- delightful for those of us who weren't committing the fraud, but uh, probably the exact opposite for Nathan while he was in the thick of it. Yeah. I mean, I I had this. This ended up being a great conversation. I I didn't know what to expect. I am not a fanboy on the level that you are. I'm not even a fanboy. I I am a I'm a fan of this case. I am I like this I thought it was a good story, but then to able to like get the guy and sit him down and and just hear him out uh was thoroughly enjoyable and I learned a lot. And of course we'll we'll talk about all that stuff at the end. But uh I I, yeah. I, I feel like you've got your 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 fanboy energy. It, it, it's the right level of fanboy energy. That's what I'm saying to you. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. I, did, I wasn't so, encouraging to do, him to do more fraud. Like, right, like what's, right. when's your next like, album oh. drop, Nathan? Yeah. It's like, uh, is it time for a comeback? Is that what? <laughs> right. I wouldn't want him to leave with feeling that. He's like, oh, maybe this right. guy. I think you got it in it. I think you, go I think back you got it in you, Nathan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, well, having said all that, let's get into our conversation with 
Nathan Muller. Nathan, again, so glad to have you on the podcast. Just to let you, just to give you a little more context than the emails that we sent back and forth. I don't know if it's right to say this, but I'm kind of like a super fan of yours <laughs> because I, way back in, it was, I think it was in 2014, uh, there was an article in the Journal of Accountancy where the majority of the article was first person. Like you wrote, I assume you wrote that and you submit it and then they put kind of some commentary around that. Is that right? Yeah. So I, I wrote that from prison. Oh. And so that was me and Mark DeGreeny going back and forth via our email system at the time and through the mail, writing, editing, um, getting feedback from the Journal of Accountancy on how to do that. So yeah, it was a, it was an interesting endeavor to do prison email as like the email we had in like the 90s where <laughs> straight text, you know, I had 15 minutes at a time to be on each, each minute on email cost me 15 cents. Jeez. So it was write down my notes and blast through it on email and get it back to him and get it submitted. So it was a, probably not your standard article writing procedure. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, it's, that's maybe a little easier than like using your one phone call to just call right. into the, and say, transcribe yeah. this real quick. Well, we, right. we got one shot. Right. Let's go. AICPA. Right. Uh, well, uh, well, getting up to, I mean, and if I guess just to, to give the listeners a little bit of context as well. So you were, you were convicted of a fraud. You stole a little bit over $8 million from the insurance company AIG. So far, so good. ING, Greg. ING. ING. Uh, ING. What did I say? Is it AIG? AIG? Was, was it? Yeah. I, 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 uh, I screw everything up all the so, time. Nathan, um, so, Nathan, just to, just to prepare you, just to prepare you, Nathan, a little bit, <laughs> a regular theme of this podcast is Greg saying things and me correcting him. So look forward to that. <laughs> yeah. Throughout this don't have conversation. yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll read numbers and, and even though they're correct in my notes, I'll say them wrong. That's, that's the sort of brain damage. I'm going to blame it on COVID. Uh, but let's, uh, lead, and, and that happened between, if I'm remembering right, like 2004 and 2007 is when, when the fraud was happening, right? Yeah, so the the there was basically like the phase one, what I, which I call it, which was eighty three thousand dollars. I stole over the summer of of two thousand three. I stopped oh, okay. for about six months. Went back in in March of four for phase two, and that went on until so from April of four until September of seven. Okay, gotcha. Now, just just again, I mean, part of the story that I don't know. Tell us kind of your like your life journey. Uh, getting how old were you when when all that was going down approximately? Um, I started the fraud when I was twenty nine. Okay, um, so I had been in that position or in that not position, but in that company for six years at that point. So it wasn't you know it wasn't a brand new situation. It was years of growth within a within a small department within a big company with a lot of knowledge and experience across the board, you know, how things worked, how our audits worked, how my bosses checked my words, you know, I, I, I had a good understanding of how things worked there when I decided yeah. to go down that. Right. Gotcha. Well, what, tell, tell me kind of growing up, like where did, did you grow up in Minnesota? What was, what was growing up like? What was your family situation like? Um, what'd you study in college? Stuff like that. Kind of give us the, 
the the pre-fraud uh, resume <laughs> for Nathan Muller. Um, so I I grew up in a small town, like three thousand people, oh. South Central Minnesota. Um, I look back at my childhood and think, okay, you know, I had a I had a loving, supportive family in that small town. You know, star athlete. I got good grades. I was popular. I had all this positivity in my life. But I wasn't happy, you know, even, you know, as a, as a teenager, I was not happy. And so I think what I, what I thought at the time was, well, I have a great family. I do well in school. I'm popular. I do well in sports. I have all this positivity. What don't I have? And it was money. You know, our family didn't have a lot of money. And so I somehow placed a lot of importance on, you know, is money the thing that's going to make me happy? Is it going to be the thing that makes, you know, it makes my life fulfilling? Is it going to be the thing that that makes people view me as successful. And I think that that's kind of the, the road I took. So when I looked at college, I went into accounting because in my small town, there was two CPAs. They drove nice cars. They had nice homes. They had this financial success, respect within the community and stability that I, that I wanted, you know, that, and so I took an accounting class in high school. I decided, um, I'm going to be an accountant. So I majored in accounting. I went to college uh, just right down the road from my hometown, 10 miles away. Good school. You know, they they wanted me to play football there. They had a good accounting program. But for me, college was like, a, it was a shortcut. It was, my goal was get a degree and get a job because I need to start making money. You know, that was always my goal was the money. And so I didn't, you know, I didn't go to college and experience college. I didn't go to college and, you know, make a ton of friends. I didn't. I didn't go to college to even like get an education. I went there to get a degree to get a job. And that's what I did. And and so what college ended up being for me was, you know, I didn't focus on the right things. I focused on getting through as quickly as possible. So I yeah. I finished in three and a half years, but I had an average GPA. And in the accounting world, as you guys probably know, when you finish, you want to get a job with one of those big firms. When they come to campus to interview, they're not talking to people with a you know two seven GPA. They're talking to people with a three five and higher. So mm-hmm. I'd limited myself from those jobs from the start. And so you know my career started with a a lower level internship at a you know I literally worked for a CPA, his wife and his daughter in a small you know firm. And it was you know part of it was just my eagerness to get through school and not really care about how it did. Um, the other thing was I just didn't know, you know, I was very naive to the accounting world in every way, which included hiring and how to get a job at the, you know, at the places you actually want to work. So, yeah, I have to say, if I may, a lot of what you describe, I, I personally can resonate. It personally resonates with me because I also grew up in a very small town in the, in flyover country. And, uh, my family did not have a lot of money, but I had a friend whose dad was a CPA and like, they had a great house and like all the things you described, they had a great boat, like all this stuff. And I also was kind of like, again, loving family, a lot of support. I was not popular. I was not good at sports. So the sports part could not have resonated with you. You got no, no. upper body strength. So no, that's not it's, not a, it's not a perfect image, Greg. It's not a perfect mirror image, but, but there, it's close. But there's so yeah. a lot of what, all I'm saying is a lot of what you say, Nathan, I, I can personally relate to you because I, I, Accounting did, I, what I understood was that the kind of the economic mobility that accounting could provide to me, that part was like clear to me. And I got yep. to take accounting classes in, co- in high school. I took my first classes in high school 
And so I, my mind was made up that that's what I was going to pursue. Again, college, I actually, you know, <laughs> I did have a college experience. I drank my face off. So <laughs> like it, it got a little out of hand, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, so it, it doesn't quite track your college experience, but like in terms of like upbringing and deciding on accounting that all of that rings very true and very close to my, even my own experience. So, so moving forward to get, just to kind of get some of the, the more meatier stuff of this, just let, let me, let me see if I can explain my understanding of how you were able to perpetrate the fraud just in, in a, in a nutshell, you worked in a small department. Um, well, and, and first off, uh, you, so you worked at a company that got acquired by ING and when that happened, all of a sudden you just, uh, got get granted the authority to approve checks up to a quarter million dollars, right? That would like, just sort of like, this is weird, but okay, whatever, a quarter million dollars. Right. Okay. And then, and then since it was a small department, if you guys wanted to get stuff done when somebody was sick or on vacation or something like that, you, like you, you had, if you were to use normal internal controls, everything would just kind of shut down. So you shared passwords and logins so that if somebody happened to be gone or sick or on vacation, that you could still do your job. And then all of a sudden, one day you had kind of this light bulb moment where you go, oh, wait a second, I could go in and I could uh, request a check as me and I could go into somebody else and approve that check through them. And then I could pick up the check and then that's my check. And that's that's sort of how uh, that that's the idea that formed. And that was more or less how you how you committed the fraud. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. You make it sound so easy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It really wasn't that easy. Yeah. Well, what was it? Tell me a little bit more about the D because I. Oh, sorry. Did you did you mention the foreign the foreign currency bit, like where where, oh, where the stuff got buried, or did, or did you mention that? I, I, I did would not look at the notes later later in the story a little bit. Okay, got it. Okay, sorry, not jumping ahead. Sorry, Greg. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't know you as well as I do, Nathan. Let me. <laughs> the, uh, I'll just I'll just. <laughs> The listeners can't see it, but I'm fading into the head like Homer <laughs> right. Simpson. Like Homer Simpson into the bushes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yep. Um, so, yeah. So tell me a little bit about, because you touched on it in the article uh, where you had, it, there was something about like picking up the checks too, because usually, you know, the, the separation of duties is some, like you have, you have one person who has physical assets of the, or physical control of the asset. You have someone else who who does the booking keeping and someone else who does the reconciliation. Wasn't there some part of the story where you, you also had to have an excuse to go and pick up the checks that were getting processed through your, your system, your, your fraudulent system. Correct. Yeah. So as far as the, the check pickup went on an, on a normal daily basis, one of our, you know, lower level employees, she would grab the check register so our, our admin system that sent the check run over every night to PeopleSoft automatically printed out some reports and as part of that there was a check register so here's the checks that were sent over to PeopleSoft to be printed she would grab that report walk across the street to the division because the same person printed the checks for all seven divisions around Minneapolis in the Minneapolis campus and they would print the checks paper clip them put a post-it note on reinsurance REB you know all the, all the things put them in a, in a three ring binder with a log and that sat in an empty cubicle. So every morning this girl would grab the check register, walk across the street, grab reinsurance checks, initial that she took the checks, 
She would bring them back to our boss, the controller. He would verify that the checks that printed matched the check register. That's the checks we're expecting. And from there, they were sent out. So I was the backup for both of those people on that in that thing. So if if that girl was not there that day, I was the one to pick up the check register, go across the street, pick up the checks, bring them to my boss. So when I was going to steal money, she had to be gone so I could be the one to pick up the checks. Or when my boss was gone, she would go pick up the checks, bring that back to me, and I would verify that the checks matched the register. So either he needed to be gone or she needed to be gone. And so, you know, early on in my fraud, it was, I would only do it days that I knew that one of those two was going to be gone the next day. But then later I would just, that girl actually reported to me. So I would, you know, I need money to this week. So I would go through the process, request a check, approve it as somebody else. Then I would go to her and give her the day off the next day. You know, you've been doing a great job. I'll just take tomorrow off. And she thought I was just this amazing manager. And it was right. Just <laughs> Best one more boss ever. Best boss right. ever. <laughs> just so I could keep my eyes on the checks. Yeah. Did she give you a world's greatest boss mug at any point? Um, she just verbally. <laughs> just verbally. <laughs> just, she just verbally gave me the, you're such a great boss. So. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Well, and, and, and that's, that's a not uncommon. I, at my work, the guy who hired me, uh, I ended up, ha he, he had perpetrated a fraud over a number of years before I even got there. And it was, it was a weird, weird thing not to get into that too much, but one of the really, I, I loved him as a bot. He was a great guy to work for. He was just a nice guy. I considered him a close friend. How were your people skills as, I mean, obviously you're the, this person who worked for you was there, were you, were you a, were you kind of a star? Was it, was everybody enamored with you at, at, in your department at ING? You know, early on in my career there, I worked my butt off, which allowed me to be promoted, allowed me to, you know, keep taking up more responsibility. You know, my reviews on an annual basis were top notch. And then, so when I started committing the fraud, yeah, I mean, I was on some level a uh, high-producing employee there. I think people liked me, even though I'm, okay. I don't know. I've always been kind of like, uh, I don't know, like brooding. <laughs> like oh, yeah. negative. I don't know. I guess I can. I guess <laughs> also, tracks, also tracks. Also tracks. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I would say that historically if you came to my office to talk to me about something it was serious because i tried to set an atmosphere where people didn't bother me but no i mean i think i could be nice i could be engaging yeah. i could be you know all of those things if i needed gotcha. to but you but it sounds like you 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 created career capital for yourself just by working your butt off because it sounds like you were very motivated and very focused on you 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 wanted you wanted to make money and so that's because of that. And employers like that. If you're motivated to make money, then, and you're willing to do whatever they tell you to do to make it, you're going to be a star. So is that, yeah. is that more or less correct? I think that that's a big part of it, which is why I think, especially from my boss, I had a lot of trust, you know, yeah. I think yeah, yeah. I had way too much trust in yeah. what I was able to do in, you know, Again, it was like all these things kind of fell together to make all of this possible. But I, I do think that my my work ethic, my you know results, how I did things, that's why I continued to to get more responsibility and get more trust within the department, which which really helped 
you know, in the stealing the money and covering it up. So. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by Patriot. Patriot software creates accounting and payroll software that radically simplifies the day-to-day complexities that American businesses and their accountants face. Patriot is seamlessly integrated under one login, easy to use and affordable. And they rank number one for ease of use, customer support, features, and value for the money by users. Patriot's accounting software is a cloud-based, full-featured accounting general ledger that gives your clients the simplicity they need, but the power you require. Patriot has patented dual-ledger accounting, so you can quickly switch between cash basis, modified cash basis, or accrual accounting, and a chart of accounts that can have unlimited sub-accounts and nest up to eight accounts deep. Patriot's payroll software lets you run payroll in three easy steps, offers free two-day direct deposit, and their full-service payroll offers a tax filing guarantee. Accounting professionals can partner with Patriot and receive discounted pricing that increases as you add more clients. Support located in the USA, free co-branding, and free accounting and payroll for your firm. Join thousands of accounting professionals who trust Patriot with their clients' accounting and payroll and get a 30-day free trial. Head on over to ohmyfraud.promo slash Patriot. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash P-A-T-R-I-O-T. Gotcha. So, um, so you, like you, like you alluded to before, there was kind of a phase one and a phase two two-year fraud that there were some interesting things about phase one so you only stole you stole less than a hundred thousand dollars in phase one and and basically you were like you were thinking i want to get out of debt and so so you had listened to a lot of dave ramsey and you're like dave ramsey you are a man of the lord and you've inspired me to steal from my company to pay to get out of debt because that's what god really wants i no i'm uh but but (laughs) That, that was the motivation, right? Correct. So we were, my now ex-wife, we were having a baby. Uh, and it, it, that whole, every part of like my story was a liar, a, a fraud. Like we we're going to have a baby. I thought that, you know, the best thing for our daughter is for, you know, us mom to stay home, you know, quit her amazing career. My ex-wife is, she had a great job, super smart, amazing person. I basically convinced her that she should quit her job and be a stay-at-home mom. You know, at that point, I was like, well, okay, I, I, I worked two jobs. You know, I was working at Star and then ING, but I was still working at that CPA firm. So I was working oh. basically two full-time jobs. Yeah. I made good money at the time. Could I support the family on one income or my two incomes? Yeah. But then, you know, the next part of the lie is I had a bunch of debt my wife didn't know about. And so at that point, I'd be like, what do I do? Do I come clean to her and be like, hey, I have this debt you didn't know about? Um, Uh. Which obviously that, you know, being honest was not my thing back then. So I wasn't about to admit that to her. Now, I can't really make more money. I'm already working two jobs. So how do I come up with Mm. additional money to keep paying off this debt? So that's when the thought of the fraud popped into my head. Like, you know, that's when I started justifying, not that it was okay or, you know, like not wrong, just justifying it from the, the standpoint that could I do this? 
you know, could I yeah. steal money and what's it for? And I convinced myself, number one, it was my only option, and which was a lie because my whole life was about appearances. And so I wasn't willing to like live on a budget. I was all about <laughs> appearances, right. keeping up with the Joneses. And like, so I convinced myself, well, I could, I, I don't have any other option but to steal, you know? And so that was a lie. And the other thing I convinced myself was I was doing it for my family, which I wasn't. I was oh, doing it mm. to keep up appearances. You know, mm. yes, I was going to use the money to pay out debt and, you know, have my, my wife stay home with my child, but it wasn't about that. It was about the, you know, I'm, I can support my family. My wife can quit her job and stay home. So how does that make, that makes me look successful, you know, in my skewed view of success back then. And so it was all, it was all for the wrong reason. And it was all lying to myself about it, but that's, now, that was, that was the decision I made. Can I, can I just clarify one thing? Did you come to the relationship with your wife? Did you come to the marriage with the debt? Was that something that you came with or what, did that happen after y'all had been married? Yeah. So like going through school, she was a year younger than me. Her, her family was wealthy, but she didn't have, you know, I, when I graduated college, I had credit card debt. I had a mm. lot more school loans than she had. Um, and I, from my childhood, even though it, it doesn't make sense looking back, I, I like carried shame with my financial situation. And so mm. when I finished school and I had all this debt and she finished school and she didn't, I just felt like, well, I don't I, like basically I'll, I don't think she'll, she would be with a guy like me who has all this debt. Mm. Like I'm just not gonna tell her about it and stuff. Mm. And so with our finances, since I kind of ran everything, we somewhat kept separate finances in that, you know, her dad was a bank president. She already had her bank account. She already had her credit. She already had that stuff I had <laughs> mine. So we had one joint account, but I paid our bills. I did our taxes. I handled our finances. And so, mm. and she just didn't care, you know? And so she, she really was kind of a perfect victim for me because she trusted me and she really, she didn't care about money or material stuff at all. So um, but yeah, that was stuff I brought to the relationship. Got it. Yeah. And so, so the next, the next beat in the story is probably my favorite part because if, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was like the last check cause you, you kept transferring balances to your credit card and you would send checks into your credit card and it was like the last check so that you would be, so all this debt that you brought with you is completely out the door. And then at that moment, you had the like a, a crazy scare. Tell tell us that part of the story if you if you would. Right here, right. So I was I was cutting the checks from ING's account to my credit card company because I thought that started because obviously I couldn't write the check to myself. I needed to send it to somebody where the payee would look normal on the system. And so I had a credit card with a financial institution that you know we had an insurance company that we did business with. And I thought, okay, it's just going to look like a little commission check. And so. I had set that up, you know, I called the credit card company. I was like, is it okay if my employer reimburses my travel expenses by cutting checks to you directly? And they're like, we don't care who pays us as long as somebody pays us, you know? And so for me, it was like, perfect. I'm going to cut checks, send them, pay that off. So like you said, over that summer, I paid off that credit card. I transferred balances from other credit cards. I paid those off. I used, remember the old convenience checks you got in your statement every month. I used that to pay off my school loans. I paid off my car. I paid off all this debt that my wife didn't know about, you know? And so I get towards the end of the summer and, um, and I have, I have spreadsheets in my entire fraud. So I, I have all this oh. stuff. So 
I a can true, recycle. A true accountant. <laughs> right. Not, yeah. love, like, love my like you're, you're calculating your, your utilization rate for your fraud. I, I, I love my spreadsheets, but not as much as the FBI. Uh, yeah, um, right. So I, I get to the end of the summer. I'd cut a check for 5500 You know, my first check was 1100 Over the summer, it grew, you know, 1500 1800 2000 up to $5,500. I mailed the check off. And by this time, I'm extremely paranoid. You know, I'm, I didn't think it was going to work from the start. And every time I did it, I was more convinced I was going to get caught. You know, and even though it wasn't huge in miles, it's, I still was, like, freaking out. So every time I'd done it, the process was the same. The timing was the same. Log into PeopleSoft, request a check as myself, log out, log right back in as my coworker, approve the check, pick it up the next day, mail it to my credit card company. Two days later, it hits my credit card. The day after that, it clears the bank. I can see the process through PeopleSoft, through my credit card state, you know, online. So you had it down cold. Sounds like you yeah, had it down cold. It worked. <laughs> it worked the same every single time. Yeah. So this last check, I mail off. Day two, it doesn't show up on my credit card statement. Day three, it doesn't clear the bank. A week goes by, so now I'm convinced they caught it. They know, you know, like literally right. waiting for, I was waiting for the, you know, FBI to jump off from under my desk when I got to work every day. And so two weeks go by, nothing. And so I'm just like, you know, my daughter's due in a couple of weeks. Like I'm oh. freaking. Oh, and so, um, jeez. <laughs> I walk in one day and I get, and I laughed about this with somebody the other day. Like, do people still get those like, inner office mail envelopes, you know, where you'd get stuff from, from the different departments around the country. And so I get an envelope, I open it up, there's the check. And so it turned out that I had forgot to put my account information on the check when I mailed it off. Credit card company gets the check, doesn't know what to do with it. They mail it back to the address on the check, which is accounts payable in Atlanta. Person in accounts payable gets the check, looks it up, sees that I'm the requester because she knows me. She just sends me the check back. And so right. kind of like this, this guy will know what, I don't know what to do with it. This guy will know what to do with it. <laughs> yeah. well, this is a, this, this was somebody I talked to every single day. So when she right. lifted the thing, I was my check. She's just like, Oh, it's Nathan's like sent it back to me. And right. so at that point I'm like, hmm. that was like my, that was my one off. That was my like reminder from God or something. Like it's time <laughs> to stop this. Like you got away with one there. Um, yeah. And so it's I your reminder. It was your reminder from Dave Ramsey. He was like, "Okay, you paid off your debt. Now let's let's wrap this yeah. up because you're done, right? Right, so. right. No, it was, so there was that scare, and there was the like the objective. I had done what I set out to do. I had right. paid off my was I paid off my credit cards. I paid off my car. You yeah, know, I paid off eighty three thousand dollars in debt. Never bought one thing. Not I didn't spend the money on anything. I just paid off debt. That was done. Stop stealing. Move on. So. Yeah. So you were the world's most responsible fraudster ever. Right. For six months. For, for six months. Okay. So, um, oh, well, and, and an interesting thing, because this just came to mind while you were talking. If you had flipped that around and if you had logged in as a coworker to request the check and you had been the person approving the check, that would it would have blown up right there because the check would have got sent back to somebody else, not you. And they would have been like, this is not an okay check. And you would have been caught that way too, right? Yeah, that's that's actually I've never thought of that, but yeah, hundred percent. Because yeah, because I think when I've thought about this fraud in the past, I go it's probably kind of arbitrary, and maybe sometimes Nathan logged in as the, and requested it. Sometimes maybe logged into approved as, as yourself rather than as somebody else. Yeah. But it sounds like you had a system where you were always the requester and you always logged well, in as somebody else as the approver. 
I would guess out of the 99 times I did it, there were times that I didn't do it exactly like that. I okay. know like, so here's the thing, like, you know, we had a team of six people. I know there was people that had their, their passwords on a post-it note on their monitor. And so <laughs> of course. I knew at least one time <laughs> my coworker that I usually used her password, it didn't work. And so instead of like locking up her thing, cause I had test, I had tried twice. Uh-huh. I just grabbed this other girls and requested it as her and approved it as me. So I know that I did, you know, I'm sure a few times flip it around and request it by ask somebody else and approve it as myself. But right. yeah, on on that case, that's a great point that I never thought of that that could have that could have stopped it all right there. And it's funny because we all laugh about people having just their passwords on a post-it note on their computer, but. Like I, la- I, I scorned your coworker and then immediately I was like, oh, I absolutely have some passwords on posted on my computer too. So it's, I mean, it's, it's not like too far fetched. Um, so the, so here, here's the part. So part B, uh, of your fraud phase two, phase, phase two, two uh, the, what, cause, cause clearly your motivation was, I want to get out of debt and then. Like, what was your motivation for phase two? Was it just like what you're talking about in terms of growing up and just like you, because you were comfortable yourself. I mean, I w- I'd think if if all of my commercial debt was paid off, I've got my mortgage, but I've got a decent job. I'm making some okay money. Then I'm okay. And, and, yeah. So what, especially thinking you probably could have just shut it down and gotten off scot-free, but you decided right. to, to go back in and go back in hard to, for phase two. What was what was right. that motivation? So, and and here's the thing I get from other people: like we were with you on the first part, but when we went phase two, that's when you lost us. You know, because <laughs> you could some people could understand. Hey, I'm trying to get out of debt, take care of the family, but phase it two seems, no. it seems noble. It, that stuff all seems right. kind of noble. <laughs> so with phase two, and and I, again, I remember this, and again, I have. I have the business set up for the business that I sent up, so I know the dates of all this stuff. So in March of 2004, you know, it's been six months since the, what I call the scare. So the scare is, is is wearing off, you know, the the miserable life I was living over that 83 grand six months prior. And I kind of forgot about it, you know, things were okay. things were good now. My little girl's six months old, you know, work's going well. Financially, I'm in a good place. So I'm sitting at my desk and I was thinking, you know, I did all that work to steal that money and I didn't even do anything fun with it. And mm. so like literally that was my thought, like just okay. off the rails, insane, you know, self thought. So at that point I was like, man, how, you know, how could I do this and, and, you know, really have some fun with it? Like, you know, mm-hmm. really, literally ramp this up and, and, you know, start buying some stuff. And it wasn't yeah. from the standpoint, like, okay, I want a new car. I want a watch. I want a this. There was, I had nothing in my mind about what I would buy if I had this money. I just thought, but you know, basically let's go. And so I, once again, I committed to it just like the first time, once I had committed to it in my mind, I was going to do it, you know, even, mm-hmm. even though I could sit there all day long and think this is a horrible idea. Like this is this is not a good idea. This is not going to work. You're going to get caught. All these negative things. Once I committed, I was like, I'm in like, and so the only thing up in the air right now is how am I going to do it, you know? And so at that point I was like, with, with the credit card thing, what I did like about it was mailing those checks off. I'd lost control over the process. And so I wanted to commit my fraud in a way that I had total control of the process. So I need to be able to get those checks and put them in a bank account and have full access to everything. And so that's when I thought, and to me, it's so basic. This is like, 
embezzle that 101. Well, I'm going to set up a company with the same name as one of our brokers and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to cut checks and it looks like it's to a broker, but it's right into my account. So I went through that process of, you know, I got a federal ID number, right? I filed a name with the Secretary of State. I had a P.O. box. I had a business bank account at Wells Fargo. I had a business on paper solely to commit fraud, which again, you know, the the biggest thing that the FBI, the U.S. attorney, couldn't believe is that I filed a legit tax return on that business and reported all my stolen money. So yeah. um, the joke there is I didn't want to lose my license over this. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, but, but also, I mean, that's, I mean, that's uh, someone who's financially savvy, who's a professional, you know, in accounting that you're going to go, yeah, if I've got a business, I want everything to look legit. And part of, part of getting caught is going to be, you know, we've all watched Untouchables, so we all know that the IRS right. is how bad guys go to jail. Right. Yeah, if they don't so that's here, they're here. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So that that all that all makes sense to me. What were so what were some of the? Uh, well, I guess, uh, it, yeah. You were you must have been spending money just hand over fist then once it started hitting your account. Yeah. So it started small and unnoticeable, and I, I recognized I had rules early on that I just stopped following. You know, but like. When I first started stealing money, the, the first big check I took there was $27,000. I wasn't trying to you know, raise uh, a bunch of suspicion. $27,000 is a ton of money to me at that point. Right. But well, I started we, well, sm- like, at that time, I'd go to Best Buy every week, buy new release CDs, DVDs. I bought a TV. Okay. Those are like things that are, people would be like, oh, you must yeah. be stealing. You bought four DVDs this week. You know, <laughs> I started it. Uh, I got into watches. And so I bought my first like $800 watch. And like as stuff evolved, I spent more money and stuff. Like I just would go to the grocery store and not worry about what I spent that week. Or you know, I might go buy a couple new shirts. And it just was it was all small stuff that wasn't noticeable. The first vehicle that I wrote a check for, I had the same vehicle. My lease ran out, so I got the same vehicle again. I just wrote a check for it. So okay. I'm driving the same vehicle. That doesn't raise any suspicion, you know? Right. And right. It, it got to the point where I was like, I had some lies in there. I had. As I was starting to spend a little more money, noticeable money, but not like, well, that's crazy. One of the things people knew, everybody knew I worked two jobs. Nobody knew how much money I made. My wife didn't even know how much money I made. She didn't care, you know? But everybody knew that the CPA that I worked for nights and weekends, they knew that I, he, he wanted me to come back full time and buy him out in retirement. They knew, he, everybody knew that he wanted me back. And so I was like, yeah. He's trying to entice me back, so he's giving me more work, more clients, more money. And so, you know, I'm making, you know, two, three grand more a month than I was. And and that explained some of that spending. And then it got but, to the point, you know. But that wasn't really happening. You you were just that was just your that was your lie to cover up your spending, or was he really doing that? No, he wasn't doing that. Okay. I was still gotcha. working. I was still working there. Yeah, but not uh, this extra stuff in this you no, know, there, there was like there the, was no there was no extra. So Okay. Once we got to the point where I, I wanted to buy something that didn't make sense. It would have uh, been like, this doesn't make sense from my wife, from my family, friends, coworkers. It was a motorcycle, you know, it was a $35,000 motorcycle. I was like, how am I going to do this? How can I explain this money? And so that's when I kicked off the, the gambling thing. And I, I had never really been a gambler before, but I knew from doing taxes that if you win a jackpot over $1,200, you get a W2G. You get a tax form that says you mm-hmm. want X amount of dollars. So mm-hmm. I don't care if I win money or lose money. If I have a tax form that says I won that amount of money, uh, I can spend that amount of money is the way I looked at it. So right. 
you know, I, I tested my hypothesis. Like I, I took like probably $40,000 to a casino. I played high dollar video poker until I won 30 grand. I went home and told my wife, Hey, I just happened to win 30 grand today. I'm going to buy this motorcycle. And I told right. everybody that everybody like the first time everybody's like, Oh, that's a great story. Everybody's really yeah. happy for you that you won 30 grand, you know? Right. Uh, but then when I need a, I need 55 grand for a car I want to buy. And then I need, you know, every time I do it, like the third time you go to the casino and come home with $70,000 and people are like, I've been to a casino before. I'm pretty sure they don't just like hand out money like this. And so it was, it was early on in that, that people were starting to really question, okay. you know, I had it down. I had never, I never let people gamble with me. I never let people see stuff. Yeah. I would just show up with fistfuls of W2s and, and, yeah. but tons of money. Um, and right. so that was just because those W the, the, because it's the W2G that's the gambling one. Right. Right. And that, yep. and, and they, all they care about is how much you won, not how much you, you blew to right. get. So if it's you want, it's not, it's not a net win or loss. It's a yeah. gross win. Okay. Yeah. And I didn't right. know that about those. So that's, that's very interesting. And that, and again, very uh yeah obviously this was very well thought through uh process to cover your tracks and to and and even like from a money money laundering kind of position you were the you you, you brought it out dirty but you you took it you took it out of your bank account pretty clean uh, right and and justifiable so um just in terms like going back to what you were talking about like right at the beginning because you said like when you're in high school you were popular you were a good athlete like everything was kind of going your way but you were still just not a happy dude were you when you were when you were rolling in it with this stuff with the money getting this get buying the stuff you had this you didn't have to worry about you didn't you didn't buy hamburger on on sale you bought steak and Da- you know damn the coupons that kind of thing what it, were were you happy during that time did it did it uh, you know my my assumption is still no but also i gotta think maybe yeah you were I, I mean an honest reflection on that was that a happy time for you uh it was absolutely miserable um, really it was miserable from the standpoint that i just looked at myself as more of a fraud you know, it's really, mm. it's really easy to be a big shot and spend somebody else's money. I wasn't earning the money It nothing like it felt cool at times to be able to like do things that other people probably would never do or take my friends on a trip or do something. There was like some level of satisfaction in that. But the bottom line was the, the, the misery of knowing that I was just a loser stealing the money, the bottom line of always knowing I was going to get caught and what it was going to do to me and tear apart my family and the things I was going to do to everybody around me was miserable. Um, and, and you could see it in me in over that time period, how, how much I changed, how, how dark I got, how withdrawn I was, how horrible I was to other people because I hated myself. You know, I was just, I was a miserable person from every standpoint. I treated people like like garbage. I was a, a huge jerk to everybody hmm. because I was just so disgusted by myself and I just lashed out on others because of that. So it was just, it was a, a horrible, miserable time and it just got worse and worse and worse, you know, like every day. So I want to ask you, I just want to ask you about something you said. So even during that time, you knew where this was going to end up. Like you knew this ended 
with the fraud collapsing and and the and whatever the consequences of that would be you it, somewhere in your mind you knew that right there was times where you know like i said i had rules early on where i would only steal as much as i could you know keep the books <clears throat> even which you know we'll we'll hit on that the foreign exchange and and how oh, yeah. i got that stuff past auditors and how i made it you know go away um you know, if I would have quit after a million dollars, I probably would have got away with it kind of thing. There was times I was like, you know, should I quit? Should I be done with this? The whole thing was, even though it was miserable, it was so addicting. Like the money, the the fraud was just an absolute rush every time to do it. You know, there mm. were so many pieces, but I was never, I was never in true denial about what the end game was. And that got more and more clear to me as time went on. You know, when I got to the point where, I didn't want to do it anymore. My life was horrible and I, I could not function anymore. There was no way out of it. There's no way out of this without me going to prison, you know? And, mm -hmm. and that was the, when I got to the point where I stopped stealing, it was like, I'm just going to stop and wait. Somebody's going to figure it out at some point. Um, I never had, I never had the, the courage at any point to even think about turning myself in. But I knew that the writing was on the wall from early on and that that got more and more apparent to me throughout the whole time right this episode of oh my fraud is sponsored by liveflow did you hear the news liveflow just launched a new consolidation product liveflow power user beth melcher of MoneyFit said that liveflow's consolidation is saving her team 15 to 20 minutes per client every week and eliminates the use of formulas LiveFlow's automated multi-entity consolidation is simple to use. You can easily map multiple unmatching charts of accounts from multiple QuickBooks Online companies into one standardized report. And once it's set up, LiveFlow works its magic, updating the consolidations automatically in real time, so you can focus on analysis using instantly updated data across entities. LiveFlow can even consolidate financials that are in different currencies, and the possibilities don't stop there. LiveFlow empowers you with flexible, powerful reporting tools to create customized dashboards that meet your specific needs. Build executive presentations, cash flow forecasts, and more with just a few clicks. Stop grueling over manual consolidation reports and to get 25% off your first three months, be one of the first 10 listeners to head over to ohmyfraud.promo slash LiveFlow. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash L-I-V-E-F-L-O-W. And I could see that almost like becoming a like a, a vicious circle too, where if you're going, I know I'm gonna. I mean, if I stopped right now, eventually I'm gonna. Somebody's gonna figure this out, and I'm gonna get caught. So why not keep doing it? Why not? Why not ride this till it has to end instead of ending it myself? If I'm gonna get caught one way or the other, is that was that part of your mindset at all? There, there was definitely like uh, a cycle in that everything I did made me feel horrible, and so I did something worse to cover that hormonless up which made me feel more horrible. So, you know, I'm going to steal this today. I'm going to buy this. I'm going to do this, treat somebody like trash. I'm going to do something horrible to cover up the last one. And it, every, it just got this downward spiral of, of just of horribleness. And it just, it got to the point where there, there was no way out for me. You know, there was just, yeah. there, there was, I just felt like there's, there was no way out. And I just had to like step back and wait for it to happen. Mm -hmm. Hey, hey, Caleb, didn't you have some sort of question about a foreign currency exchange or something like that that you wanted to ask? 
Well, it kind of doesn't seem that important now, but <laughs> well, lay it on us. What? Because I think this is again one of the unexpected twists. It, it, because our our audience, we have we have a lot of people who who just listen casually. We've got a lot of people who listen to our podcast who are professional CPAs. I was very, I, th- I thought it was very interesting and very creative the way that you buried the your your fraud in the books at ING, which was through foreign currency, which which part of why that seems so novel is that I think for the vast majority of people, we never, you, you can go your whole career without having to audit or you know, if, you're, if you're in public, you never audit a company that does foreign currency exchanges. Or if you're in a company, if you work in industry, you don't, your company just does, you know, domestic business. So, but you, but, but that's where you, where you found a convenient place to keep this uh, out of sight from, like you said, from the auditors. Can you tell us a little bit more about the like the nuts and bolts of that? Yeah, so with phase two, um, with phase one, all I did was when I would request a check, I would credit cash debit right off, like literally. Oh, okay. So I had huge, we could, we could write off large amounts. So to write off 83 grand over a, a, a summer was nothing. But wow. once my amount started raising up, I ran into the thing where I need to put it somewhere and then mm-hmm. I need to figure out how to get rid of it. You know, and so as there's this growing, what I call my f- growing fraudulent balance in this ledger account that I reconcile on a multi basis, I need to get this reconciliation with millions of dollars of fraud in the balance past my boss on a monthly basis, past auditors probably twice a year, internal and external. Um, Sarbanes obviously control testing people going on at that time, state insurance examiners. There's a lot of people digging into this stuff. And so the first thing I identified, and again, this is because I spent six years reconciling the account where I was going to stick this. I knew how my boss is going to look at it. I knew how auditors were going to look at it. I knew, you know, I knew how to manipulate a 22-year-old fresh auditor into, you know, confusion and letting me convince them what they should put in their work papers. Wait, wait, how, how do you do that? You can't just, you can't just drop that. This is not tell us how you did it. That's even, this is, this is a common, what was it? This is a common theme in a lot of these stories is like, yeah. oh, young auditors that you kind of just right. take so, down a very strange uh, and impossible path. Quickly, the, the account that I was going to put this in was we had a, we had a, a Canadian subsidiary. And so a single standing, office in Canada where everything happened in Canada because of regulatory purposes. We had an office, we had workers there, um, you know, the investments backing the reserves were up there. They collected all the premium up there. They paid all the claims and commissions up there. Everything happened there. And that had to filter down into PeopleSoft in the United States. And so we called this the Canadian package. So basically on a monthly basis, they had to get me their three pieces of information. They had their contract-related stuff. They had access to our admin system, so they processed all of their stuff on our admin system. That flowed straight to PeopleSoft. They had their, um, you know, the general expense items, their their expense stuff from their office. What I did was I took, you know, their trial bills on a monthly basis, figured out their expenses, and I made an entry to PeopleSoft on a monthly basis for their expenses. The third piece was the investment income. So let's say we had $200 million up there in investments backing the reserves. All that money was in T-bills and bonds in 10 million Canadian dollar increments. So on a monthly basis, we're receiving interest payments and buying and selling T-bills and bonds. So all of that came through me. So I would verify the contract-related stuff in admin. I made the entries for the 
the general expense items, the investment activity all came to me. Uh, I would put together an exhibit with the Canadian dollar entries for everything. I would translate it to US dollars for this exhibit to investment accounting in Atlanta. They would make the entry. So those are the three pieces. In addition to that, I had to reconcile their bank account. So on PeopleSoft, we had one ledger account, Canadian bank, but that was actually made up of five actual bank accounts in Canada, three in Canadian dollars and two in US dollars. So I was reconciling five accounts and two currencies in the one ledger account in US dollars. So it was a mess. You know, there's yeah. always foreign exchange difference. There's just a ton of different types of activity there going on and I had to reconcile it. So it's a mess. I was the only person who had worked on this the whole six years at that point I had been there. Nobody really knew all the pieces, how it all fit together, including my boss. So I was like, perfect spot to put this. You know, sure. like I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, you know, I steal money, credit cash, debit this account. And so I've got this growing debit balance in this ledger account that number one, I need to get past my boss and auditors. So that part of it was, again, from doing this for years, I knew that when on off quarter end months, my boss was gonna, he was gonna verify my my reconciliation and he was gonna verify the ledger balance off a query that I gave him because he didn't know how to query stuff. So okay, there you go. <laughs> I would query the balance of the account. Let's say it's $8 million, but 3 million of that 8 million is my fraud. I would query it. I could download it into Excel and I would just subtract off 3 million and print it out and he would tie to an incorrect balance. Just super basic. Just, yeah. You know. But on off quarter or on quarter and months and like year end auditors and my boss, they would tie my reconciliation back to an actual trial balance or balance sheet. So I couldn't fake the balance. So I right. had to find a fake reconciling item. So same concept. When investment accounting made their entry every quarter for ING investment activity, they made one entry to PeopleSoft for all the investment activity across ING Americas. So Ooh. there's one entry that was thousands of lines long representing billions of dollars in activity. I was query yes. that entry. I need to find a $3 million entry that I need to make it look like they hit our books up on exit. I query it. I find a $3 million entry. I bring this query into Excel. The $3 million entry that I need is a fake outstanding item. I change the business unit in the account and make it look like they hit our account in error. And I put it on my reconciliation. Investment accounting hit our account in error. We'll correct next month. And so the reason it worked was because that's how we moved money around within within ING and PeopleSoft was instead of, you know, you get my money instead of you wiring me the money, you would just do a cash transfer entry over PeopleSoft, you know, your business unit to my business unit, PeopleSoft handles the do to do from in the middle, you stick it where and people made those entries all the time and they made them incorrectly. So our reconciliations every month had cash transfer entries that were done incorrectly super common. So I just made it look like investment accounting, they tagged our account, should have been Security Life of Denver. My thought at the time was, is internal audit or external auditors, are they going to say, well, our team in Denver can verify that they have an outstanding item for $3 million because they should have got that entry and you got it. They right. never did that. So I just tweaked an entry. Um, and again, I was always like, how does nobody find this? Because when I check my people's affiliations, the first thing I do is run the queries. Yeah. Because... We independently verified my queries and they allowed me to use queries downloaded into Excel that I could just manipulate. So super basic stuff. Right. Well, and if I was in Denver, I would have been like, I would have been like, the hell is this $3 million charge? Because that, 
Yeah, because you think somebody's reconciling that side too, and maybe eventually, I guess people just throw up their hands and go, I, "Who knows what the hell this is?" We, like you said, it's billions and billions of dollars. This is dust on the dust on the scales. Forget about it. Write it off and move on. All right. So, so that was the 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 first part of it. How do I get it past them? I just could fake stuff, and you know, I could make a query say whatever I wanted because they would accept it in Excel, and they they never nobody ever asked me to run one a query in front of them. Nobody hmm. could run the query themselves. So it was just like no independent verification of my queries. Um, the second part was, well, how do I make that go away? You know, I can't write it off now. I can't expense it. How am I going to get rid of eight and a half million dollars? You know, like, and so that's where I thought just in general, I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to make an entry just for my fraud. You know, like the only explanation for this entry is to get rid of fraud. I wanted right. to manipulate something that I was already doing to chisel away at that balance. And so back to the, the, the Canadian package, the investment activity. So on a monthly basis, you know, there might be $50 million of activity because they might buy and sell, you know, five different 10 million Canadian dollar T-bills or bonds. So the amount of activity investment wise could be significant, even if the net was small. So I was like, okay, here's what I need to do. I list out my activity. So buy $10 million Canadian dollar T-bill, you know, sell, buy, sell, whatever it is. So now I have all my Canadian dollar amounts for my investment activity for the month. I was supposed to use the average monthly exchange rate of Canadian dollars to U.S. dollars to translate that activity to U.S. dollars to put in. So now that I have that in there, it's, it's 0.92. Okay, well... What if I manipulate it now? I know my entries are supposed to translate at 0.92. Well, what if all the debits I translate to 0.91 and all the credits I translate to 0.93? And so I credit my account for more than it should be credited for, and I debit it for less than it should be debited for. Mm -hmm. Over time, it's going to eat away at that. You know, yeah. every every entry that's a credit's too high, every debit's too low. Over time, that would eat away at that balance, like yeah, silently yeah. eat away at that balance. And so right. the first time I did it, like you look at it, I know that these are all 10 million Canadian dollars. So this column should all be 9.2 million US dollars, but this one's all $9.3 million credits and $9.1 million debits. So when I look at the, the exhibit, I'm like, this does not look right. So I'm taking a chance at sending this to someone to actually enter, you know, the girl who did that stuff, I had known her for years. I assumed if she spotted it and asked me, I could just say, oh, I screwed up, forgot to update the rates. With everything I did, I was thought the first time I could probably get away with it being a screw up. Later, I'm screwed. But mm -hmm. so, you know, the first time I did it, I sent it to her. She made the entries. The next thing was, you know, I showed the exhibit with the .92 translation to my boss. Then I had to show him next month that, those entries all went at, you know, 0.92 translation, 9.2 million. They didn't. All the credits were 9.3 and all the debits were 9.1. So I would yeah. query it, download it to Excel, and type in what I wanted it to say. Uh, yeah. Again, with no verification. So, right. so over a four-year period, every single month, I every debit that hit that account for investment activity was less than it should be, and every credit was more than it should be. And so I ate away about $5.5 million that, that balance over that four-year period. So there was about $3 million of that balance left in there when I got busted. So. Gotcha. Um, so actually, first off, fun fact, there is an actor that I follow on Pornhub called The Canadian Package, so that's just a weird uh, coincidence. 
Um, but no, also, just uh, just <laughs> curious. Uh, I mean, the next the next point in the story is how did you get caught? Because I, uh, yeah, because it was it was not internal audit. It was not external audit. It wasn't you know the insurance uh, auditors. It, it wasn't any of those people. Tell, tell the tell the folks what happened. So obviously, like I had I had thoughts all along. Who's going to catch me? You know, and initially I thought with all the audits internal, external, like all the people digging through our stuff. And every single person that audited our books went through the Canadian package, which quickly, what I did to the young auditors was I would lay all this paperwork out. Like you guys are old enough to remember like the green line dot matrix paper. I had like this big green line dot matrix paper. I had all these different exhibits and I would lay everything out. And when I did my reconciliation, I had every every different colored highlighter met something different so i would take this 23 year old kid and i would start doing like this is goes to this and this this and i would just talk them in circles until yeah. they just were assy eyed and had no idea what i was talking about and from going through this i knew that they had the same work papers every year they have the same stuff every year and they're like so what should we put in our work papers and i would tell them what to put they would put it in and they would move on to the next thing so wow. it was just preying on the confidence of a young auditor that's not going to say I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what's happening. Yeah. I, I don't understand. understand. This. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I need to go and ask my senior. I need like always just praying on that. They don't want to look stupid. So they're not going to bring it up and they're just going to tell it right and move on. So. Right. Or, or alternately they've got all this pressure to be like, don't we've got, you know, so many billable hours budgeted at this project. You better damn right. sure make sure you're not over this. And if you're talking about all this complicated stuff, they go, okay, I'm just going to take his word on this because I don't want to get the beat down from my, from my manager about going over yeah. hours too. So yeah, brilliant. So, okay. So that, so well, that's how you manipulated the auditors. So back to how I got caught. So first it was auditors. They never caught anything. The next thing I thought the IRS might come digging because of my extreme income gross over a four year oh, period. Yeah. You yeah. know, since that, that money was all going on my taxes in addition. So on my actual taxes, I had my normal W-2 income. I had a Schedule C with millions of dollars. And then I also had my gambling income, which was washed by gambling losses. And mm -hmm. so there's a lot of stuff happening on my taxes. So I thought going from, you know, 150 grand to a million to 2 million to 4 million might raise red flags enough to get audited. So they did not come knocking until after I got busted. Um, so then I was like, internally, who's going to catch me? I, I already mentioned, I didn't think my boss would find it just based on knowing his limitations within our systems and stuff. So I was like, the person I think is going to catch me is my coworker whose password I'm using for many reasons. You know, she's the smartest person there. She knows everything I know. And some, she's the one who trained me in. She has all the access that I have. And I'm using her, her user ID to commit the fraud. And so I thought if anybody's going to catch me, it's going to be her. But she didn't really have any reason to like look at anything until in August of 2007. So I'd stopped stealing in like June or July. And I was just in this like waiting period, you know, like somebody's going to find it. So we get an email from accounts payable one day in August. And the email is to my boss, my coworker, and me. And the email says, if you guys want to keep your signing authority of $250,000 on checks, you need to have this paperwork filled out, approved, and sent back to us. And so instantly my thought was, this is it. You know, now my boss and coworker know that we have this 
signing authority that I've been abusing, this is going to th- be the thing that gets me caught. And even though I wanted it to be over, I was scared to death about what being caught meant. So at that point, as soon as I read that email, I heard my boss walk out in the hallway and my coworker walk out there. So I walk out there and, and our boss says, did you guys know you had signing authority on checks? And I said, no, I didn't know that. You know, he's like, would you guys need that? And I said, no. And so he went right back into his office, emailed accounts payable and said, revoke that authority. They shouldn't have it. But I knew that that wasn't the end of it. And so basically what happened with my coworker is she ran a query to see if her user ID was associated with any check payments. And what she found was that in 2007, she had approved a million dollars in checks. And so uh, I'm sure that was shocking to her that she had approved a million dollars in checks that year. A couple weeks later, my boss comes into my office on a, you know, two o'clock on a Friday afternoon and he hands me this query and he's like, can you show me the backup for these checks? And I look at the query and it pops out to me that that's a million dollars in checks I had stolen that year and he wants the backup. And so that day it turned out that the- Well, well hold on. Was that, was that just a bullshit question? Was, it, was that really him just saying, I caught you stealing? Or was it, it, or what's that? At the time, at the time I thought, this is how he's confronting me. He's just yeah. like messing with me right now. You know, like I assumed he knew and that this was his way of confronting me and, and making me sweat. Um, okay. The reality but he really was, just wanted vouchers and invoices? Yeah, he really, he didn't know at that point. <laughs> ah. I've talked to people there since that they didn't suspect me until like later. So it turned out that the girl that entered that stuff that would have had that backup had it actually existed she happened to be out that day and so i just talked my way out of the office like sorry i don't know where she keeps it we can't find it but he was really pushing me that day it wasn't like just a casual oh she's gone okay it was we're digging through her desk we're looking here we're looking there and you know i knew right where that stuff was and i you know for the the legit stuff i knew where that was but i wasn't going to show it to him because right. obviously there was no backup for these checks. So yeah, yeah, yeah. at that point I knew like, it's over. I went home that Friday night and I was like, it's over. Like I, I researched lawyers. I got a lawyer on the phone that night. I went into work the next morning. I, I created fake check requests for all of those, that million dollars in checks. Everything looked legit. You know, I copied, I copied signatures. I had, I originally, I set up my, my fake company with the same name as this insurance broker we used it reviewed and the reason I did that is because they would send in money sometimes and not they couldn't identify what it was for. So oh. if we couldn't identify it, it goes into suspense, it causes a reconciling item, it's a pain in the butt. So sometimes we just send the money back. So I made it look like I was refunding money that we couldn't identify and so oh, I was just sending it geez. to this broker, but I was sending it to myself. So yeah. I faked all these things. I was like shredding documentation. I was trying to just cover my tracks any way I could. I went and met with my lawyer that day. He's like, you need to go on a Monday morning and, you know, to mount a defense, we need to know what they know. So I went in Monday morning when my boss got in, I went in there, I had a whole notebook full of fake documentation. I explained my, you know, these payments were all refunds for, for premium. We couldn't identify. So that we sent it all back. And, and he was like, Oh, that makes sense. You know, like, okay. And I was like, did I just get away with this? <laughs> right. Uh, and so at that point, he's like, I just need to go show this to Mike. Mike was our CFO. Mike was my boss's boss. And Mike was the person whose signature I faked and all my fake documentation. Uh, so when uh, he's like, I got to go show this to Mike, he walked upstairs with this notebook full of fake documentation. 
I ran to my office, grabbed my stuff, ran out to my car, and like squealed out of the parking lot. And so yeah. <laughs> that's where I say it. My coworker was saying, like, "I'll just, I'll just wait here while you go talk with Mike." Right. And you're heading home. Yeah. Uh. That was like when you squealed out of the parking lot. That's when they just thought maybe you were the, the one to look at. So I tipped him off, but it wasn't. Once you knew what to look for, it was really easy to find. You know, like I had a query me to just pull my fraudulent stolen checks. So. So, uh, so all this unfolds, you end up, uh, the, the FBI get involved. I'm sure you go to court, you get, um, you were sentenced to, was it 97 months in jail yep. and how yep. much, um, and you, but you only spent like about two thirds of that cause you got out early for good behavior. So in the federal system, you do 85% of your time. You're given your good time on the first day. So out of 97 oh. months. I had 380 days of good time on that. So you can't earn more good time, but you can lose your uh, good time. Um, okay. So I ended up doing five and a half years in prison. And so there's the the 380 days of good time. Then there's something called RDAP, Residential Drug Abuse Program, in the federal system where if if you don't have to prove you're an addict, you just have to prove you drank or did drugs, you know, oh. before you got busted. So I qualified for that. So if you take that 40-week drug program, you qualify for up to a year off. <laughs> you qualify for exactly. qualify for up to a year off. So I got a year off for that program. And then you do your last six months on home confinement. So out of my eight years, I got a year off for good time, a year off for the drug program, and then the last six months you on home confinement. So you're still a federal inmate. You're just... You can work, you can, you know, start to rebuild with your family. You're just monitored on a daily basis at home, at work, wherever you are. So right. five and a half years in prison was plenty. You know, when I went to prison, my kids were five and one. And when I came home, they were 11 and seven. So uh, yeah, uh, and, five, and five and a half years, that's, that's just barely enough time to write one article for the Journal of Accountancy. I know I've right, done that yeah. as well. So. Man, it took me until my last month there to get that done, too. Yeah. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by the South Carolina Association of CPAs, also known as SCA CPA. Hey, Caleb, you know I love diving into a juicy fraud case with you, right? But check this out. There's a place where accountants get together and talk shop and share knowledge about everything accounting-related, including stories about untamed financials. Oh, tell me more, Greg. At every single one of my state CPA society events, there's a mountain of practical insights and experience. You get to meet other accountants, share knowledge, and even hear some first-hand accounts of financial intrigue. And here's the kicker, Caleb. You'd be hard-pressed to find a better place for networking. I joined my state society as an undergrad during the depths of the Great Recession, and before I graduated, I had multiple job offers, all from firms that I connected with through my state society. Hey, that all sounds pretty good, Greg, but what else does a state CPA society bring to the table? Uh, They bring lifelong professional friendships, networking that'll turbocharge your career, and leadership opportunities. And on top of all that, your state CPA society is an unwavering advocate for you and for the profession. State CPA associations keep their fingers on the pulse of the constantly shifting business, regulatory, and legislative landscapes to keep you on the cutting edge and to protect the CPA profession. And as you know, protecting the profession means securing your livelihood. 
And hey, wherever you're tuning into the podcast from, be it the Palmetto State or some other state with a lamer nickname, there's a CPA association in your corner ready to ignite your accounting journey. If you're ready to find out why CPA Association membership is for you, head on over to ohmyfraud.promo slash SCACPA. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash SCACPA. I'm, yeah. I'm Nathan, I'm curious about like what was what was your prison experience like? I mean, how did you spend your days other than writing the J of A article? I mean Um I, so, I know prison prison obviously changes people. How did how, how did it change you? Right. So like it's a prison camp, it's minimum security, so it was it was not white collar prison the way I thought it'd be. You know, I was in Duluth, mm-hmm. Minnesota. It's an old Air Force base, so it's like a hundred acre compound. When I was there, it was between 900 and 1,000 people. 85% are low-level drug crimes. So it's all like drug, drug dealers and gangbangers from, you know, Minneapolis, Chicago, Detroit. It's not a bunch of accountants. So, but it's, it's basically a small community. And it's managed by prison staff, but the inmates are the people doing all the work. So you got to find a job. You have a 40-hour-a-week job there like anything else. And so I got a job in education as an education clerk. So we had an office, I had a desk. I went to work every day, you know. Our office was open from 7.30 in the morning until nine at night, you know. So if you weren't at chow or at count time back for four o'clock, we could be at work or working out. So my daily was get up, eat breakfast, go to work, eat lunch, work, work out. I lost 75 pounds my first five months in prison and I stayed in tip-top shape the whole time there so you know i probably worked out an hour to two hours a day every single day mm-hmm. you just get I, in a you get in a, a rhythm of here's what i do every single day and you don't think about what day it is or what year it is you just you get a routine and you follow that routine and so weekends it slows down because you have you don't have your work to go to you know you i had a lot of visits i had a lot of support from the outside world so the whole time like for me i was i got there the first day somebody basically said you know you either, you know, you're either going to die or it's time to fix yourself. You know, you have all these years of prison. This is your opportunity to become the person you want to be, like work on yourself, you know? And so I had somebody that held me accountable to get in shape, you know, physically, mentally. I just started reading, reading about happiness and reading about mm-hmm. positive attitude and all these things and positive psychology. And I just kind of evolved there. I, I was part of a speaking program where we went out and spoke to college kids and business people and all these different areas and so uh, i taught classes in prison i did a lot of stuff i had never done before i gained new skills in public speaking and teaching and writing and and so by the time i got out i was a different person you know everybody recognized that i was in no way the person that had gone in there who was yeah you know i just given up you know i thought this my life was over in every way i learned that my life was just beginning and and a lot of people encouraged me and gave me opportunities along the way to to be where I am and who I am now. So yeah. I'm very grateful for for what it all did for me. You know. Yeah. So Nathan, how much? I assume I don't I don't remember reading this, but were you court ordered to re, to like pay restitution for for your crime? Yeah. So my crime was easy in that. When ING investigated, they came to us and said, you know, we think you stole eight million four hundred fifty-five thousand one hundred and seventy-eight dollars fifty-five cents. Okay, and I agree. You know, I kept a, I, I have a log of every check. I know exactly what I stole at the time, as I was committing the fraud. I didn't want to know, so I never, 
I never looked at the sum column. I kept it off the screen, but we we agreed on the loss amount from the start, which makes things easy. That's the exact number that my criminal restitution was. So you pay restitution while you're incarcerated, while you're on probation, and then probation lasts 20 years from the time you are out of prison. So I think I have like 13 or 13 ish more years. And so how it works is I get a bill in the mail every month, just like any other bill they monitor, they track, you know, they track my payments every month. And so how they determine the amount is they just come in and audit my finances whenever they want to. And so, you know, it's a full financial disclosure. They get all of my financial information, you know, income, assets, expenses, liabilities, everything. And then I think it's, I think there's an IRS chart of acceptable expenses based on income levels. And then they set my payment amount based on that. So now when they, when they do that audit, do they rely on your queries that you pull or do they do those queries themselves? They actually, they, they asked for third party verification for some reason. Good, good. All right. That seems confident. Nice. Obviously, I wish I had $8 million to pay it back. I mean, I still owe $7.5 million. But the way the process works, they're not trying to crush anybody. They're not trying to put me, you know, out of commission. They want me to make an honest effort to pay what's reasonable for me in my situation. You know, child support comes first. Like, they make sure that. I'm handling all my responsibilities. And so there's a lot of accountability there. Yeah. And it's a reason, it's a reasonable amount. Yeah. So catch it. Um, so, so just to, just to clarify that when you said, uh, so restitution happens during your probation period, probation is 20 years after you get out of the slammer, then is it basically whatever you can reasonably pay of that 8.5 ish million dollars in 20 years? That's your restitution or sure. so that doesn't hang over your head right. for the rest of your life. And you're not, you know, so I've already been given my completion date of restitution when okay. it's when it's done. So basically, at that point, the judge writes it off after twenty years. Okay, so gotcha. Um, have you have you thought about taking money and going to Las Vegas and gambling to try to pay your eight point five? Uh, do you play Powerball constantly? I mean, I do, I do play the Powerball. Um, you know, I became addicted to gambling when I was committing my fraud and my whole fraud turned from using gambling to like explain my money to, I was just stealing to gamble. And so, you know, it's the one holdover from my fraud where I don't gamble. I don't go to casinos. I don't, I don't mess with that stuff. But you know, the reality is I have great data on my gambling and I know that out of the eight and a half million dollars, I still, I lost 6.2 million of it gambling. So geez, holy shit. That's insane. But I also, yeah, my W2G winnings over those years, you know, I had like 170,000 winnings in 2004, 380 in 2005, 870 in 2006, and like 1.3 million in 2007. So that's gambling a ton, you know, but I was losing. Yeah. And again, it seems like it's justifiable. It's like, I can't not gamble because this is how I justify, right? This is how I cover my tracks. Right. So, right. Uh, So, yeah. So interesting. Um, so nowadays, is your job speak just speaking on fraud? What what is your day job now? Are you a full time speaker presenter talking about fraud and ethics? Um, I'm an accountant again. Uh, You're an okay. Not a not a not again. Not your standard situation of a guy I was in prison with 
started a very successful business at a time when they were growing exponentially. They couldn't afford the accountant they needed, but they could afford me. So, you know, we, we both took advantage of the situation in that they know how much experience and ability I have, and they know I could get a job somewhere else. So they gave me a chance, you know, to get back in the game. And so it's it's been an amazing opportunity for me to grow, to continue to do something I love, to be a part of something, you know, super exciting. Obviously, we're very, we're very deliberate how we do things and setting up controls and, and yeah. very transparent in our communication. There's no like beating around the bush, like I can't do this or I can't see this. You know, we don't need to whisper about it in the corner. We can all just say, because of your past, you can't do this, you know? And so yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done a lot of different stuff here. I've been here for two years now. I'm doing, I'm also in a tax role now, like a corporate tax role. So, okay. But I've got to do a ton of stuff here. I got to use a lot of my experience. I do have, I have experienced public and private. I've experienced big and small. And so I've kind of seen everything and I've been able to to use that here. And just one more thing I feel extremely lucky about is being given this chance. So I still do some speaking. I don't like actively or actively market myself anymore, look for speaking. If it pops up, I do it my my employer, employer is very supportive of my speaking opportunities and, and the ability to keep doing stuff. So I don't know. It's kind of best of both worlds. I get to keep doing this work. I get to keep speaking. I get to be myself and be, you know, open and honest about every part of my life. Cool. So one, one last question. It, looking back on the fraud that you committed, because obviously you've had tons of time to to ponder it, if have you been able to identify uh, something that AIG no ING Jesus I did it again could you have you been able to identify something that ING could have done that would have just prevented your fraud because there because again you you even said it you're kind of like you found yourself in this position it was your daily position you knew the ins and out of it and you can kind of go oh there's a loophole there that isn't unplugged there's a loophole there that's unplugged was there some and, and that's just inescapable that's that's right. why we have to take ethics training as a, as CPAs but have you identified something that's like if AIG did this it would have been a silver bullet and I would not have been able to do my job um do or sorry not been able to commit the fraud. I think that there's some real like basic stuff. You know, a big part of the problem was that all the controls in place that would have stopped this, I was responsible for. And so right, right. I yeah. could manipulate them. I could and here's here it to me it comes down to this, and it's not necessarily ING, but from an audit perspective, the two things were I worked with queries that I could download into Excel and type in and nobody ever verified them. So it was yeah. as simple as an auditor saying, run this in front of me or somebody else running the query to verify it. The other thing was that when we were audited, auditors came in and they gave me a list of what they wanted in a couple weeks. And they would accept copies of source documents versus actual source documents for verification. I could fake anything. I was part of the rolling out PeopleSoft program. So I, ha I was a power user in PeopleSoft. So I could go into reports and rewrite them, manipulate them, exclude things that I wanted reports. So you think you're looking at a list of all checks that were printed 
but I'm giving you a list of all checks that were printed except manual checks, which is my fraud. Like I, I could do that. I, you give me a printer. I can, I can run multiple reports in different areas and make it look like I ran it six months ago with a timestamp from then because I could just anything they wanted, I could fake. And so it was all super yeah. basic, all super simple, just like independent third-party verification of anything I ever gave them. And there was no, everything was accepted at face value. Right. So there was no, it was the professional skepticism that was right. that was missing, where it's like, we trust this guy, but professional skepticism is like, we still shouldn't trust him. Let's make sure that we that we at least go. Yeah. But again, there's like an endless, I mean, that's what makes prevention of fraud so difficult because there's an endless list of things that you should and could do to make sure nobody's to plug all those holes that are out there, but actually doing all those, you know, you, you end up getting this cost benefit problem where it's like, right. we could do that, but it'd take a whole team of people to do that. And, and people like you who are trying to do their job wouldn't even be able to do their job because you're spending all your time trying to trying to comply with all of the uh, the the internal controls and the internal audit demands right. on you. So it's such a such an intractable problem fraud obviously which uh but hopefully we're hopefully between your efforts of what you're doing uh and and we're hoping our podcast in its little way too helps to plug as many holes as we possibly can. Agreed. Awesome. And I think that's a great place to end. Well, hey, uh, one more time, man. Thank you so much for carving some time out of your day to, to talk to us. We appreciate it a, a ton. Uh, so, yeah, muchas gracias, Nathan. Yeah, I appreciate it, too. Okay, that was Nathan Muller, and I thought that was great. Uh, Greg, did we learn anything? Uh, absolutely. Um, uh, that that was th There was so much to me that I was able to glean about this case so much of the the kind of the the more of the tacit sort of stuff not the not the explicit here's the the steps of the fraud but it was so interesting to be able to listen to Nathan talk about so uh, like that more of the texture of the fraud and things like that and one of the thing that really stuck out to me and I think it stuck out to you too is that mm -hmm. Nathan he's he's like a good accountant he's Yes. He's like really good at what he does. Um, yep. And the fact, the fact that he is so good at what he does is the reason that he was able to like, like if anybody who was dumber than him, worse than him at that job, couldn't have pulled it off. Uh, right. I mean, just with, with everything he was talking about with, you know, with, with how to, how to manipulate the, um, the internal controls, even how to bury it in the, in the financial statements and, and how to play as boss and play the auditors and stuff like that. The guy, his rules, the rules that he had for how to spend the money and all of the stuff with the, with the gambling, uh, 1099. I mean, the guy, he yeah. was smart and he thought this shit out. Um, yep. yeah, but, but uh, do you remember at the beginning where it was like, so, so were you a real, you, are you a great people person? He was basically like, no, I was not a great <laughs> person. Yeah. <laughs> It's kind yeah. of a, I was kind of a grump and I pretty much Broody. wanted everybody to leave me the fuck alone. Yeah. 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 So, but, but he had his, like his, like I said, his career capital was built because he was so good at what he did. Yeah. And that not only gave him the trust, but it also gave him just the raw, the sheer ability 
to be able yeah. to pull off this fraud. So connecting some dots from my life, uh, a, a long time ago on a podcast, I listened to the district attorney of Northern California who mm-hmm. said his, his advice was, if you want to prevent fraud at your company, make sure that everybody in the accounting department just fucking hates you. like no team building you want these people to just despise you so like like not only do they not work together well they're like hoping somebody does something bad so they can stab them in the back uh with a knife and like deliver them to their boss to go see this this motherfucker needs to go um but so that and which is which is not false if your only goal is to make sure that fraud doesn't happen but then with what we heard from Nathan, I'd like to add to that that not only do you want to hire an accounting department where they all hate each other, but also where they're all like super shitty at their job because if <laughs> right. if they hate each other and they're shitty at their job, they can't. They even if they if they if they're shitty at their job, they're too dumb to figure out how to manipulate the accounting system to perpetrate fraud. The, I mean, that'll be part of it because they're they're not good at their job and then the other part is even if they do try anyways their coworkers are going to be ready to fillet them at any moment so there you go Eric, yeah. that's the internal control that they don't tell you about in school i think the other thing is that hopefully they're all a little bit lazy because as we've i think what we've discussed at great length in many of these episodes is that uh the perps end up working way harder at the fraud than they would yep. at a regular day job. And uh, so if you're lazy, you're not going to be like, oh, I can't, I can't keep that up. There's no right. way. So yeah, <laughs> right. there's, there's a few so, different kind of, kind of unorthodox internal controls that you can Im- implement there. Uh, yeah. Lazy, so when, lazy employees, uh, average employees and uh, employees that uh, actively dislike each other. Yeah. Yeah, so during the interview process, if you say describe yourself in three words and the three words aren't dumb, mean, and lazy, you say, get the fuck out of here. You're not the person we're looking for. I'm I'm a disagree I'm a disagreeable person. You're hired. <laughs> right. I guess my biggest takeaway from this was just to, uh, you can tell that guy spent a lot of years doing soul searching because yeah. I think he has a pretty good grasp on where he was in his life and why he did what he did even if he doesn't maybe either talk about or know what the rationalization was, because he was talking about like, when you asked him, it's like, how were you feeling during this time? And he's like, I was miserable. Like, (laughs) right. He wasn't, he wasn't lying. (laughs) Like he was definitely telling us the truth that like that period of his life. I was was, thinking it would be more nuanced. Yeah, I thought it'd be like it was fucking rad, but also, it, but no, he was just straight to no, it no, was horrible, he, straight ahead, and 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 it was and it was specifically because he knew that it was all predicated on a lie, yeah, and that under underneath everything else, that he 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 knew that was wrong, and so that is, I, I don't know, I, I've I've read plenty of accounts of fraud and you, li- you, you read plenty of accounts of people who, uh, are, are, you know, that, that say they're remorseful or they regret their decisions or this and that and whatever. And I, I don't, you know, I, I give people the benefit of the doubt. And this was our first interview with a perp. So I guess for me to like have the conversation with him 
and 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 kind of hear him and 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 watch his body language yeah. and the tone of his voice and everything and it's just like no that dude was that dude was in a dark place and he even said like getting near the end like just how he treated people yeah. he just he 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 told us that he was in that dark place and i was i think i was surprised by his level of forthrightness yeah. about how bad it was for him right cuz when he um, was he, and which is it which is interesting yeah, because he, he basically said, I was treating everybody as a means to an end. And you were like, oh, man, I relate to that. So but isn't that what I, I'll have to re-listen? No, to no, that wasn't. No, were, that I didn't relate. I didn't relate to oh, him in that. It sense, was so, but like the oh, part okay. where he was the, just like where he was. So the not, part. The, not the sociopathy. That wasn't the. No. <laughs> Greg, How did have you, you felt, connect? Have you felt that I'm a so? Have you felt that I was a sociopath this whole time? Have you, what just is in your eyes? Just in your eyes. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> the uh, wow. Oh, well, let me think. Oh, I got. Shit, I got. I got it? something. I. I. I'll, I'll have to bring this up with my therapist in my next session. Right. Right. Um, hold on. One other thing that stuck out to me that that was like a true learning moment was hearing him explain. Mm-hmm what it what the whole restitution process was i didn't know that there okay. was a you've got 8.5 million dollars to repay but if you can't pay that back in 20 years and i guess we'll just write it off as bad debt that's that's ah. fucking weird to me i thought that that hung over your head for the rest of your life but you it's they, they they've got an end date where you're like after this point you're scot-free so that that's going to motivate a lot of our listeners to go commit those frauds because you know the jail sentence is going to be light and you know you're not going to pay, have to pay back all that money you steal. So let's go right. get it while the getting's good. Am I right? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, that's it for today's episode, everybody. Remember, if your New Year's resolution is to lose 75 pounds, go to a federal minimum security prison. And also remember that although AIG is an international finance and insurance corporation, it had nothing to do with today's episode. Uh, so Caleb, where can people find you out there in the internet if they'd like to get a hold of you? I'm on Twitter at CNewquist and LinkedIn backslash Caleb Newquist. Greg, where are you on the internet? I am at Greg Kite on pretty much all the social media handles and my OnlyFans is titled The Canadian Package. Lovely. Oh, Canada. Right. It's, it's, a, it's fraudulent. I've, I, I'm not from there. This is, a, this, is a, this is a package from the great United States of America. Oh, My Fraud is written by Greg Kite and myself. Our producer is Zach Frank. If you like the show, leave us a review or share with a friend. That's how people find the show. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And for the accountants out there, if you listen to this podcast on Earmark, you could get free CPE. I don't know about Canada, though. Not available. No, not Canadians. It doesn't count for Canadian CPE. So, that that's a that's a package to come later. It's a whole different package. A different package. Join us next time for more avarice, swindlers, and scams from stories that will make you say, "Oh my, oh my fraud!" fraud. <laughs> Canadian. <laughs>